Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Today, I'm doing a solo podcast, and I'm going to talk about avian biology, or really ornithology. I'm not an ornithologist, I'm a birder, but I'm taking the Cornell University Online Comprehensive Bird Biology course. I'm partway through the book, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, there are online resources to go with it. I recommend it for anyone who wants to take a, a DIY uh, ornithology course. I was a chemistry major in college, and one of my regrets is that I really took very little biology. I took uh, enough biology to get into med school. I think it was just one semester of introductory biology and maybe one other course. I don't remember, but not a whole lot of biology. I thought it was soft science, wasn't all that interested in biology at the time, and I regret not taking the ornithology course that was at Bowdoin at the time. There was a great ornithology department there. It's really quite well known, and I just wish I had taken the course and maybe gotten into birding at a younger age, but can't look back, so I'm trying to study it now. Anyway, I thought I would go over some of the things I've learned from this course uh, through the first few chapters. First, we talk about natural selection. In a recent episode, I, I talked with Dr. Jeffrey Hill on his theory of mitonuclear compatibility as a theory of speciation, as a way the fittest birds actually are the fittest. Four things have to happen for natural se selection to take place. First, there have to be differences between the individual birds in a population. Second, at least some of those differences have to be heritable, in other words, genetically passed on. Third, there's got to be a difference in the reproductive success of the individuals in the population in order for the offspring of the more reproductively successful individuals to increase in number. They have to be more successful. And fourth, this reproductive success has to be associated with these heritable differences in the birds. Uh, so that's, those are the things that have to be present for natural selection to take place. I think if you listen to Jeffrey Hill's explanation, I think his uh, theory certainly accounts for all of those and more. I think you'll enjoy it. Check it out. Anyway, there's a section on bird coloration. It's a pretty cool section. It's in chapter four of this book. I found it uh, pretty interesting. I knew some of this sort of, but it really helped me uh, get it straight in my mind. There are really two primarily, uh, two primary pigments that birds have, two classes of pigments. One are the melanins, and these are the dark pigments, really. They uh, are the pigments that give birds black, brown, gray, reddish brown, and even pale yellow colors. And melanins are manufactured by the birds. Birds can make their own melanin from other dietary products. They have the proteins and genetic processes and enzymatic processes necessary to create their own melanins. So all I have to do is have nutrition and certain essential elements in their diet, and they can make their melanin. Carotenoids are the other primary pigment, and these are primarily dietary. Birds really don't make their own carotenoids. They ingest foods with those pigments, and they process those pigments to be used in their colors, in the color of their beaks, in the colors of the feathers, uh, in their colors that you can see on the birds. So there are carotenoids that are dietary, and those create a lot of bright colors, reds and oranges and yellows. There are some minor pigment classes that play a role. Uh, I'm not really going to cover those much, uh, but the taracos have porphyrins, People have porphyrins uh, and that, that are part of our uh, biologic makeup, and uh, there are conditions where they're poorly tolerated, and that's kind of what caught my eye about the porphyrins. But anyway, porphyrins are in certain taracos. They give purplish reds and greens. And then parrots have their own special uh, pigment that they have called 
Zitica fulvoids, <laughs> quite a name, Zitica fulvoids in parrots. But mostly the pigments are melanin and carotenoids. Structural color also plays a role. Those are colors that aren't coded for by pigments, but are coded for in the way the bird's structure is that changes the way light that shines on them is seen by the observer. And that's done because uh, certain structures in the birds, feathers primarily, allow light that passes into them. Some of the light's diffused and goes away, and others are bent in such a way that it goes back out and you can see it. Blues are an example. Blues are strictly structural colors in, in birds. Birds don't have any blue pigments. They strictly use, use structural elements to create this. And I knew that, but I didn't really know how it happened. All feathers have a central vein, or rachis, and then they have off the rachis can't come the rami, uh, or many ramus, a ramus or many rami. And those are the little uh, structures that hook onto the vein and stick out to the sides. They're what you see make up most of the, the, the surface of a feather. And those rami are held together by little tiny structures called barbules. Well, in the rami, uh, there are, is made up of keratin, and keratin is a different uh, uh, density than air, so when light hits it, it is bent. Uh, and there are little tiny air bubbles in these rami, and the air bubbles are in specific patterns so that long wavelength light is diffused and set off in different directions and knots and basically absorbed by the bird. But the short wavelength light, specific, specific hues of blue, and the bubbles can be different to make it a dark blue or a light blue. The blue is obviously not the same in a pinion jay as it is in a stellar's jay or that it is in a bluebird or a mountain bluebird. Uh, but the blues, uh, the short wavelength blue light can be bent and refracted in such a way by these air bubbles that a certain certain wavelength of blue is seen. Uh, and that's, that's how it works, all these little tiny air bubbles inside the, the rachis of the feathers. Uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. And don't forget the barbules, the little barbules that hold those rachi together, these are tiny little structures. Well, in some birds, in certain places, those barbules have certain bubble patterns, and that's what creates iridescence. In hummingbirds and certain other birds, the iridescence that you see uh, with the light, when, it's certain, when you see it in just the right direction, with just the right light, it just flashes at you, this iridescent color. That color is caused by caused by uh, refraction of light also, but that's in the barbules, and it's a specific type of refraction that gives that brilliant uh, look when you look at it in certain directions, from other directions it just looks dark or black. So I thought that was pretty cool. I've also been interested in the anatomy and physiology sections of the book. There's a whole section on flight, and that is just uh, flight dynamics and aerodynamics way too complicated for me to try to talk about uh, verbally. Uh, I have trouble when I can look at the pictures and think through it. I think it's pretty complicated how birds fly. So I'm not really going to get into that too much. But I am going to talk about other aspects of anatomy and physiology. First of all, birds have really unique respiratory systems. Birds' bones are lightweight and in many humans, the lightweight uh, bones, say of the face, the sinuses, those connect to the outside, air can go in and out. Well, the hollow bones in birds that have air inside them connect to the lungs. So air that they breathe in can go through the, through the air passage tubes or bronchi, can go through into structures called air sacs, and then on into hollow bones or it can go straight from the bronchi or the lungs to the hollow bones. Uh, and so when birds breathe, air goes in and out of their bones in addition to their lungs. 
Also, birds have a one-way respiratory tract that's incredibly efficient. Think about it. We breathe in, we breathe air in, uh, we breathe air out through the same passages, the oxygen and the carbon dioxide get mixed together. So it's really not uh, the con you know 21% oxygen air that goes to the lungs a lot of the times. It's less than that because it gets mixed with the air in our bronchi and the air that's already been uh, gone through the, the capillary bed of the lungs. And so uh, we're not terribly efficient at using the oxygen in the air. Well, birds are much more efficient because the blood flows through uh, the lungs and the air goes through in a one-directional passage. Air goes in one set of tubes, through the lungs, and out another set of tubes so that the 100% of the oxygen in air is available to the lungs as the air goes through the lungs. Birds can fly higher because of that and lower oxygen concentration areas, and it gives them a really efficient uh, metabolic system for utilizing oxygen. Their uh, aerobic capacity is extremely efficient. Well, in addition, air goes into the bird's lungs both when they inhale and when they exhale. These air sacs allow that. There are certain air sacs that are compressed when birds inhale, uh, and when they inhale, air is pushed from those air sacs into the lungs. And then there are certain air sacs that are compressed when birds exhale. And from those air sacs, air can go into the lungs and out. So there are air sacs that are compressed when birds inhale, and air goes into the lungs and out. And then when they exhale, other sacs are compressed, so the air goes into the lungs and out. So it's a two-cycle sort of thing with birds. Very efficient and really cool. I didn't know about that. I knew they had a one-way system, but I didn't really know how it worked. And I heard they can, uh, they can get air to the lungs both when they inhale and exhale, but it didn't make much sense. But that's how it works. They have different sacs that are compressed when they inhale and when they exhale, both sacs that push air out to the out exhale air and sacs that let air go into the, into the lungs. So it's a really efficient and cool system. It also helps with air in the bones, helps keep birds really lightweight so that they can fly better. I was also fascinated by the section on birds' toes. Think about it, birds' toes. I mean, toes, there's lots of cool things about toes and birds, I guess. Uh, but most birds have four toes. Some have three, ostriches only have two, but most birds have four toes. And the typical configuration of a passerine is three toes pointing forward, one toe, point, one toe pointing backward, and they can grasp a twig to stand on and things like that. So pretty basic. But some birds have very different look for this. A lot of woodpeckers have two toes going forward and two toes going backwards so that they can grasp on the side of a tree. Swifts, who need to cling to inside of chimneys and inside of hollow structures, vertical structures, have two toes going out each side. So they are very efficient at hanging onto the hanging onto the side of a vertical surface. Some birds' feet have webs. You know, ducks have webs. Geese have webs in their feet to allow them to swim better. Grebes have lobes that make them very efficient swimmers. So the toes of birds are pretty cool, uh, and, and I thought that was worth mentioning. Now we're gonna talk about birds' digestive tracts. Uh, birds have no teeth, so they don't chew their food. They pretty much can rip it into pieces and swallow it or swallow it whole, but they don't really chew their food up. They have tongues that are pretty efficient at manipulating food in the mouth, so they can use their bill and their tongue to move seeds around and take the husks off seeds uh, or prepare food to be swallowed in some instances, but they really don't chew it. Uh, but birds have cool and efficient digestive systems. Birds have an esophagus that can fulfill a lot of various functions. Uh, the esophagus of birds often can expand to large, large uh, volume capacity holders to hold food uh, before it is passed into the stomach for digestion. Uh, this allows birds to eat their food, 
hold it in their esophagus, this, digest, this large uh, uh, part of the esophagus near the bottom of the esophagus, often called their crop, so they can eat their food, hold it in their esophagus, and fly off to a safe place to, uh, to digest their food. They don't have to swallow it right all the way into their stomach right away. They can store it in their esophagus. Some birds, like grouse, use this lower part of the esophagus as a special uh, sexual uh, uh, function that uh, they make noises with and big do big displays with. You've seen sage grouse or uh, other types of uh, grouse do that, uh, make noises with it. So it's all part of the esophagus, incredibly. Uh, but and then birds have two part stomachs. The first part of the stomach is where food uh, has enzymes made. It. Our stomachs produce acid and produce. Uh, uh, enzymes that help pepsin and various things that help digest food. Well, birds have the same. That part of their stomach is called their proventriculus. And so they, they, they wet their food down and they uh, put a lot of stomach acid and enzymes in it to help digest food. Then it goes into the second part of the stomach. In lay terms, that's called the gizzard. Uh, and that's where mechanical digestion takes place. It's a thick wall chamber. It grinds food up. A lot of birds uh, eat rocks or sand or little pebbles to help grind up the food uh, in the gizzard. Seed-eating birds do that, especially grouse and, and a lot of passerines. Some birds swallow feathers, grebes especially swallow feathers to keep the prickly parts of fish from injuring their stomach. So it kind of lines this, those feathers line their stomach, and, and they have a lot of acid in their stomach. They can actually digest those prickly parts of the, of the fish, the bones and the spines and various things. And so most of the pellets that they regurgitate up are feathers and uh, indigestible plant stuff. Birds' tongues are pretty cool too. A lot of birds have tongues that do a lot of different things besides just maneuver food in the mouth. Woodpeckers and hummingbirds have very long tongues. When they're retracted, they wrap up around their skull, and when they go out, they're really long. They can reach into crevasses or reach into tubular flowers to get their food. Woodpeckers have sticky tongues. They have sticky saliva on their tongues that helps insects stick to the tongue when they stick it out. Uh, other birds uh, have saliva that does crazy functions, like swifts use their saliva as glue. Their saliva is very sticky, and they use it to glue the nests on the wall of vertical cavities. So this bird's saliva can play pretty cool functions, too. Birds and mammals are really the two classes of vertebrates that are warm-blooded. Uh, or endothermic homeotherms. Endothermic homeotherms is the scientific thing for calling warm-blooded. But we, we, mammals and birds, basically have to maintain a body temperature and a range uh, for their bodies to function efficiently. Birds run hot. Humans, our, our normal body temperature is 37 degrees centigrade. Uh, birds tend to run 39 to 43 degrees centigrade. This has some definite advantages and some disadvantages. One of the disadvantages is that if you get much above 43 degrees, a lot of proteins break down. They lose their function. Uh, so they birds, most birds don't tolerate the temperature getting very high. Humans can get up you know, two or three or four degrees centigrade above normal and survive. Birds don't really have that tolerance so much. Some birds can tolerate modest increases in heat, but most birds don't do well when they get hot. Uh, but the, uh, some of the advantages of running hot is that one of the big challenges birds face is water conservation. Humans, mammals sweat in general. Uh, birds don't sweat. They can lose water by evaporation through their skin uh, and cool off, and that may account for a good amount of their cooling, but not nearly as much as uh, mammals, where sweat we can sweat uh, to increase the evaporative heat loss when, when it gets hot or we get hot. Birds can't do that, uh, so they don't sweat, uh, and they run hot. 
so that helps them utilize less water to stay cool. Uh, it's only in the hottest environments that the out, outside temperature is higher than they are. I mean, think about our 98.6. That's a pretty hot day here. It's almost 100 degrees. Well, birds run hotter than that. So it has to be pretty hot outside for the outside temperature to be hotter than the bird wants to be. So that isn't usually a big issue. Of course, you know, just like us, modest temperatures can heat birds up and they need to lose, lose uh, temperature, but they have ways to do that. Some experts feel that by running hot, birds are always ready to escape, always ready to go. Their muscles function a little bit better. Uh, a lot of their organs function a little bit better running a little bit hotter. Uh, and so uh, that may be an advantage to them. But I think uh, is consensus that a big part of the advantage of running a, a high body temperature is co water conservation. Water conservation is a big issue for a lot of birds. They have some other physiologic uh, and anatomic uh, features that allow them to not lose a lot of water. First of all, uh, their urinary system and their digestive system empty into a common chamber, the cloaca, the bottom of the colon. In the, at the bottom of the colon, when the excrement from the urinary system runs into it, it can have excess water reabsorbed through the gut. It can reflux up into the gut, water can be reabsorbed, so they don't need to lose a lot of water in their urine. But they can lose a lot of water in their urine. Some birds uh, that drink a lot of water or have a very watery food source uh, may need to lose a lot of water, and they can do that too. So they have a lot of uh, ability to regulate water loss through their excretory system uh, because their urinary and digestive tracts empty into a common chamber that can reabsorb food. Also, that big opening allows them to lay big eggs. That, along with a bony pelvis structure that I didn't get into, has a big opening in the front, allows them to lay eggs pretty large in comparison to their size and body shape. So uh, they can lay big eggs. I'm going to talk a little more about regulating body temperature. As a warm-blooded animal, they have to keep warm, uh, but some birds have some really unique aspects of that. Some birds uh, can go and allow their body temperature to drop way down at night. Uh, it's called torpor. Uh, and hummingbirds especially do that, but a fair number of birds uh, can allow their body temperature to drop down at night. Other birds cluster together. Uh, a lot of small birds will cluster together in a cavity uh, where their, their, te their temperature loss may warm up another uh, neighboring bird's temperature. So that can happen. In terms of temperature heat loss, birds can fly around. You know, when they start moving around, although it takes some muscular energy, uh, which can heat them up, the convection loss of heat from just moving a lot of air across their body surface uh, can cool them down. Uh, so cool, moving through the air uh, can actually cool birds off, just like a fan can cool us off. Some birds use a special way to get blood supply to their feet. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a way blood flows through the feet uh, that is called topical hypothermy. It's a pretty cool feature where uh, the blood going in the artery down to the feet runs right next to the vein going back from the feet and the warmth of the uh, blood in the in the arterial chamber can be dissipated into the venous chamber and so not much uh, warmth goes to the circulation to the feet and they can also clamp down the little arterioles to the feet so not much circulation goes to them. That can work for a number of reasons. First, there's not a lot of muscle and nerve structure in the feet so they don't require a lot of circulation just to maintain tissue viability and so because of that they can just occasionally open up a little blood supply, just enough heat to keep from freezing or getting frostbite and allow the feet to be very, very cold 
And because they don't have a lot of nerve cells there, probably doesn't hurt a lot or bother them too much. And that seems to be a, a heat conservation mechanism. Animals, especially that swim around in the ice cold water, can find this useful. Or birds that perch at night in cold areas probably find this useful. Uh, so that's called type topical hypothermy, kind of a cool uh, feature. Birds can also lose body temperature through gular fluttering. A lot of you may have seen uh, cormorants, especially the birds I've seen do this, where they looks like their throat's just wavering in and out, and they're just uh, making an efficient loss of heat through their throat without losing a lot of water, so they can cool off nicely that way. Wood storks and New World vultures urinate on their legs to uh, give evaporative heat loss, so that's the way they can cool down in hot environments. Well, I'm going to wrap up uh, my cool tidbits of bird physiology and anatomy talk. I also have a Facebook page, Bird Banter, and that's a great place to leave comments, feedback, anything you'd like me to get uh, back to you about, I can DM you from there, or you can DM me for topics that you'd like to hear about. So check out the Facebook page. That's a great way to communicate. Until next time, good birding, good day.